here's the tough question of the day. I got several versions of it, but it sounds a little bit like this. There's no way we can know God or any of this spiritual stuff is real. We can't be certain. We can't know. And then the polite P.S. is, we just need to have faith, right? Does that sound familiar to any of you? When it comes to God, when it comes to a relationship with God, when it comes to heaven or hell or eternity or the soul, can't be sure about that stuff. That stuff is not the subject of facts. We just have to have faith. Sound familiar? I'd like today to talk to you about the evidence that God Himself has provided for who He is. And it's evidence in front, in the face of a chorus of people, some of them with PhDs, making very, very loud assertions about God and their certainty that He doesn't exist. Dr. William Provine, now deceased, was a historian of science. And he said this toward the end of his life. Let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. And these are basically Darwin's views. There are no gods, no purposes, and no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I am going to be dead. That's the end of me. Listen. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for humans either. What an unintelligible idea. Did you get that? That's Dr. William Provine. A much more famous colleague of his, a professor at Oxford, Dr. Dawkins, said this, the universe we observe has no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. That's Richard Dawkins, who has become a bit of a pop star because of his very articulate and often angry views regarding the existence of God. Just a cold, pitiless, merciless universe who doesn't know that you're here and doesn't care what happens to you. Well, what evidence has God given us? I want to show you three strands of evidence that Scripture itself tells us God has laid out in front of us to lead us back to Him. Then I want to tell you why, because in the face of the evidence that God has given, if there is so much evidence, and if it's as persuasive as I find it to be, then someone might reasonably ask me, well, Bruce, if the evidence is that good, then why is there faith? If there's good evidence, why do I have to have faith in the first place? Well, let's begin with the first strand of evidence, and that is creation. Psalm 19, I'm going to ask you to read along with me. In a few places, Psalm 19 is one of the classic passages that tells us what creation itself says to those, those of us who observe it, okay? The 9 a.m. service was particularly energetic readers. I hope you'll match them, okay? <laughs> Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, this is poetry, 
but it's telling you of an actual truth that can be seen in the world. The heavens above you and the sky above you declare the glory of God. The sky above your head proclaims His, very interesting word, His handiwork, His craftsmanship, His labor. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, as you as an ordinary human being live in the world, the creation around you is telling you if you can listen and showing you if you will only see what sort of God there is who made such a world. This psalm speaks of handiwork and speech and knowledge. And we now know much better than the psalmist did exactly how intricate the handiwork of God is. For instance, have any of you done your DNA testing online? I won't. They're starting to catch criminals through DNA testing that people have voluntarily <laughs> surrendered. I'm not saying I'm planning to do anything, but I'd like to make it harder for them to catch me if I suddenly go in that direction. But a lot of people are surrendering their DNA evidence. A friend of mine was absolutely shattered that after a lifetime of esteeming his Mexican heritage, he discovered he doesn't have any of it. His mother apparently made a, a story up. He's, he's from an entirely different group of people. But as we've dug into DNA and as they've mapped the human genome in very simple terms, I'm not a scientist, but scientists have explained to us lay people in the subject that the genome, your human genetic code, is simply information made up of roughly six billion letters in three billion pairs. And one scientist explains it this way, if we were to print all that information out, it would extend 1,864 miles. In other words, there's information inside you that makes you who you are. And please remember this, and this will be obvious in just a moment, through the miracle of pizza. I'm going to show you. Information always points back to intelligence. Let me illustrate. This is the pizza box that held yesterday's delicious lunch. Now, how do I know it's a pizza box? It says pizza. How do you know it says pizza? You can read it. It says a couple things. In fact, it says pizza. And under here, it gives you an instruction. It says, enjoy your delicious moments, exclamation point. And apparently, pizza is a very big deal. Now, there's also an artistic rendering of two guys cooking. There's a brand name on this can of tomatoes. There's a block of cheese. There's some oil. There's a cheese grater. And there's a guy putting the pizza, apparently this pizza, in the oven. Now, here's the question. Here's why I'm telling you all this. Would you believe for a moment that through a random series of uncaused events, this particular piece of cardboard came to display these particular symbols for no good reason? Would you believe that? No. If you ever saw this, you would know somewhere back there is a graphic designer, and somewhere back there is also someone who knows how to read and write English. Because this shows information, and information always and invariably points to intelligence. 
So when you discover the human genome, please understand that is almost an infinitely bigger amount of information than a simple pizza box, but nobody ever encounters the pizza box and thinks, well, it just arrived here somehow. I'll give you another example. You're driving into a small town, you round the curve, and here at the top of a hill in this little, uh, in a hill that overlooks this small town, you see a group of white rocks, and you read in the white rocks a message. Welcome home, Bill. Exclamation point. Now, we've just seen that together. What might you imagine is going on? Why might those rocks be saying, through white paint and careful arrangement, welcome home, Bill? Maybe a soldier has gone off to war. He was in Afghanistan for nine months. He's delighted to be home. Everybody's relieved he's alive and unhurt. So his kid brother climbed up there with a spray can painted all those rocks, and checking his work by walking about 30 yards back every time he placed a rock, he made sure that his big brother can read, Welcome Home, Bill, when he rounds the curve. It would never occur to anyone that through a series of fires and mudslides and random erosion and rocks rolling into place and changing colors in the wind, they just happened to look like an intelligible message in English. Everybody would be happy for that guy and happy for that family that whoever Bill is, he's finally made it home. And not only did he make it home, he's also welcome. Why? Because information always points back to intelligence. And it's much more than the human genome. Robin Collins, who's both, Robin Collins was in school a long time. He's both a physicist and a philosopher explains how finely tuned the gravitational forces on our planet are. And he explains it like this. He invites you to imagine the universe having a ruler set across it, divided by inches. Now, I can't fathom that because I can't even begin to imagine how big the universe is. But if you've seen Star Wars, perhaps you can imagine a very, very vast amount of space with a ruler stretched across it. And then the gravitational force is an old-fashioned radio dial that you tune precisely to the spot on the ruler that we enjoy today. Got that picture so far? Here's what Robin Collins wrote. Imagine that you want to dial, move the dial from where it's currently set. Even if you were to move it by only one inch, the impact on life in the universe would be catastrophic. That small adjustment of the dial would increase gravity by a billion Fold, making life here, as we know it, absolutely impossible. Everything would be different or simply crushed out of what we call existence. A famous astronomer said, it's almost as if somebody's been monkeying with the controls. Well, as it turns out, nobody was monkeying. What was happening? God was creating. God was making this is why some 10 years ago, a name that was unknown to me because I'm not a professional philosopher, but an absolute giant in the field of academic philosophy, specifically that spoke and wrote a great deal about God, Dr. Anthony Flew, in his old age, changed his mind and wrote a book entitled, There is a God. And in the cover, they crossed out the word no and put the letter A above God because his conversion was so dramatic after a lifetime of publishing and debating, ridiculing and trying to disprove the idea of God, Dr. Flew changed his mind. It was so catastrophic to the atheistic community, they said, you know what, he's senile. 
He doesn't mean it. Unfortunately, he held press conference to, to show that he was still quite bright, and he absolutely did mean it. In fact, he said this, I believe that the origin of life and reproduction simply cannot be explained from a biological standpoint despite numerous efforts to do so. With every passing year, the more that was discovered about the richness and inherent intelligence of life, the less it seemed likely that a chemical soup could magically generate the genetic code. The difference between life and non-life, it became apparent to me, was ontological, and that's a very special term that means it's a matter of being, and not chemical. The best confirmation of, the, of this radical gulf is Richard Dawkins' comical effort to argue in his book, The God Delusion, that the origin of life can be attributed to a, quote, lucky chance. That's what Dawkins said. Remember him? That DNA doesn't know, doesn't care, it just plays the music and we dance to it? Dr. Flew says, if that's the best argument you have, then the game is over. No, I did not hear a voice. It was the evidence itself that led me to this conclusion. And a thousand years before Jesus was born, the psalm said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Paul the Apostle wrote in Romans chapter 1, read this with me please, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Creation is one one proof, one evidence that God offers of His existence. But there's more and much more specific. There's not only creation, there's also what we're reading and what you've been reading aloud. We have His written Word, Scripture. Now, where did this book come from? Well, the Bible itself tells us, as I'll show you, that a few specially chosen people were carried along by God as they spoke in very narrow and specific terms and wrote down, were inspired by God to reveal what God wanted us to know about Him. That's Scripture, and Scripture literally means that it's in writing. Here's how Hebrews 1 verse 1, these are all portions of the Bible, explain it. Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In other words, there was a long period of time in which God, the Creator, who was not like a watchmaker who makes a masterpiece of a clock and walks away, having made His creation and having made you in it to enjoy it, knowing that people were turning his back away from Him, consistently began to speak to a chosen few people imperfect people, people like us, but began to tell them authoritatively, here's who I am and here's what I do. And Scripture itself is very clear about that process. Second Peter chapter 1 says this, above all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. This means it wasn't up to the individuals to write down whatever they thought about God. 
You live in Southern California, so I'm pretty sure the answer is a strong yes, but have you ever known anybody who claimed to speak for God? I met a guy about six months ago in the parking lot who claimed to be God himself. I didn't believe him because about five minutes after our conversation, he wanted to fight me. Not at all like the God I read about in Scripture. A man in Waco, Texas years ago claimed to be a sort of God and speak authoritatively into people's lives, and that ended in a tragic national massacre. These prophets, these few, were different. No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. In other words, it wasn't up to them. They weren't self-appointed. God worked in His own particular way to show a few people He selected who He was. And their witness has stood the test of all of these thousands of years. Second Peter says, instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible calls inspiration. And let me show you where we get that term in the next passage. Second Timothy says, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. In Paul's day, he's referring to the Old Testament by itself, the Bible Jesus read, the Bible Jesus preached in the synagogue. From infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice that. Paul says the Old Testament alone in its day was sufficient to point people to Jesus because those things that God was revealing about Himself were written down and they were faithful and true. Read the last verse with me. It's verse 16. It begins all Scripture. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. As best we can tell, that term God-breathed comes from a Greek term that Paul might have made up. He might have coined a term to describe what he encountered in Scripture. What's the word picture? When you open these Scriptures, it's as if God were face-to-face -face with you, speaking person-to-person, breath-to-breath, face-to-face heart-to-heart. Heart. And that Scripture is not speculative. It's not inventive. It's useful. What does it do? It teaches people. It rebukes people. It corrects people. And it trains them in the righteousness that God Himself has. As a friend of mine loves to say, when I'm paying attention and I'm reading my Bible, my Bible's reading me back. Have you ever had the experience where you're reading it and it's real and it's personal and sometimes it's painful? What's happening there? That's God face-to-face -face with you, rebuking you, correcting you, encouraging you, and training you up so that you will walk more faithfully and more carefully with Him. Why these Scriptures? Listen, this book is a miracle. If you're not familiar with it, if you think this was just hastily assembled together, let me tell you that this book what, that I'm holding, my Bible, was written across 1,400 years by about 40 different people in three different languages. Most of the people who wrote it never met one another. 
And yet, across all that time and all that culture, it tells a single consistent story that makes sense of life and is true to the human nature and reality as we experience it and points us forward, not to a pitiless universe that doesn't know and doesn't care, but to a great God in heaven who does know and does care. In fact, He does more than care. He loves. That's the second strand of evidence. What's the third? Well, It's the most miraculous thing of all. God speaks through creation. God speaks through His Word. And most of all, God has spoken through His Son, Jesus. His life was promised and predicted in these Scriptures. Listen to Jesus speak about Himself in John 5, 39. He said to people who were expert in in reading the Scriptures but refused to believe Him, He corrected them in this way. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about Me. You've memorized the writings. You know all the promises. You know all the prophecies. But you refuse to acknowledge it is Me that they're talking about. Secondly, Jesus came to live among us so that we would know exactly who God is. This was what was so revolutionary for the people who were actually alive when Jesus was on earth. They saw Him do things like give sight back to the blind, like heal heal men who were helplessly paralyzed, like give life back to people who were verifiably dead for several days, and people began to realize as mind-blowing as this was, as impossible as it seemed, people began to come to this clear conviction, this has to be God. Because nobody can do what Jesus is doing unless not only God is with them, but God is actually here among us. Here's how Hebrews explains it. We've already read the first verse of this. Let me read you the whole paragraph. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. You see what a big leap forward that is? God has spoken in writing, but knowing that as clear and true and pure and convincing as His Word might be, His Word alone would not bring people to Him. He sent His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. In other words, when you're looking at Jesus somehow amazingly, beautifully, you're looking at God Himself. And He, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of His power. Here's the life of Jesus summed up. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the clearest revelation of exactly who God is because it moved off the pages of Scripture into a life that people could see. That's why John says in the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a few verses later, he says with amazement, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, the God who is always there lived here. And in fact, he lived and died and rose again as promised in these scriptures for all of these centuries. 
Listen to Paul, a former skeptic, a man who once hated the very idea of the name of Jesus and who consented and contributed to the imprisonment and death of the first Christians. He met Jesus for himself and did a complete 180. And he says to people in a pagan city he once would have held in absolute contempt, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's the most important thing you should know about what God is doing in the world, Paul says. It's of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. And all of these things happened publicly. He lived, died, and was buried publicly. It wasn't done in a secret place. It wasn't done in a quiet corner. It was done in front of an entire society, most of them skeptical. And having risen from the dead, Paul says, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, who you've already heard from, then to the twelve, that's the original disciples, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What's Paul mean by that? If you don't believe me, ask them. He once appeared to 500 people at once. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And Paul says... You can hear the amazement in his voice. I can't believe he appeared to me. Now, this 500 witnesses at one time, that's overwhelming. And one of the early, test- one of the early ideas to discount the testimony of 500 people is, well, they were all thinking wishfully and they were all hallucinating. Now, whether through exhaustion or something else that you've done to yourself, have you ever hallucinated? I have. From sleep deprivation. In fact, I've traveled with people and we've been doing things that made us so tired we were each hallucinating. Let me tell you something I learned about hallucinations. You can all hallucinate, you won't all hallucinate the same thing. Your mind will take you different places. I saw airplanes in the freeway, a friend of mine saw walking trees. We were hallucinating, but we weren't seeing the same thing. These 500, they weren't hallucinating. They were seeing a miracle. They were seeing God keeping every single one of His promises. So, if you're keeping score at home, that's three things. Creation, which we now know is packed with information, and information that always points back to an intelligence. We have this miraculous book of Scripture that hangs together as a single purpose story across 1,400 years, and we have the historically well-known life of Jesus. So what stands in the way of knowing God if all this is true? Well, you've already read about it. It's our sin. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Let me revisit a passage we've already read. Romans 1 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In other words, God who sees evil is angry about it. So you can say heart-wrenching cruelty and evil as we are continually subjected to in our national news coverage, and your anger burns, so does the anger of God. All unrighteousness of men, whatever it is, what are we like? This is worth underlining in your Bible. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's a hugely important phrase in the Bible. 
What it tells me is, it's not a matter that God wasn't clear. It's a matter that I, in my sinfulness and selfishness, I don't want to listen. I turn my back to Him. I refuse. I suppress His message. As Lee Strobel, who was once a journalist, a very distinguished journalist, in fact, And an angry atheist who has become one of the most prominent pastors in the United States said, telling his conversion story, he says essentially, it's not that it wasn't clear, it's that I didn't want to be accountable to that kind of God. I enjoyed my life. And if you think that makes Strobel a monster, let me just turn that back on us, myself included. How many of you enjoy being told what to do? You just get up in the morning and you hope that somebody tells you what to do with your life, right? how to order your day. Now, why is that laughable the world over? Because everyone wants to do their own thing. And if you think for a moment that is a God this big, this powerful, that could create this vast universe and make creation itself hang on a razor's edge so perfectly that if you moved it in either direction, all life would be blotted out. If you think that God isn't powerful, You just don't understand power. And the deepest fear of the human heart that desperately wants to do its own thing is to not be accountable to such a God. And that's what Paul says is the heart of the problem. Because he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, in other words, the things that are true about him that you cannot see, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Which leads me to a final question, and it's a fun one, but it's very important and easily misunderstood. Someone will ask me, well, if the evidence is this good, why do we need faith? Why does God require faith? If He's so interested in us knowing Him, why does He still want us to believe Him? Why doesn't He just make us? Why does He require trust? Hebrews 11.6 explains it. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Read this with me. Now, without faith... It is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Without faith, and let's just use a synonym, without trust, without personal trust, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who draws near to God must believe, first of all, that He exists, and not only that, that the God who is there and the God you're trusting in also rewards people who seek Him. Why does He require trust? Because, and this is really simple and practical, and I want to make it very clear, the nature of personal relationships always require trust. They cannot exist with anything less than trust. They all start with trust, and good relationships thrive as more and more trust is given and received. This will make sense to you if you've ever had a good date or a good relationship, whether it ended in marriage, if you've ever been on a good date or ever made a great friend, this will make sense to you. If you've ever loved deeply and went on to marry that person, for instance, do you remember where the first date was? 
I took my wife in the early days of my courting. I was very flashy. I took her to places like Chili's because, you know, I was serious. Now, if you've ever gone on a first date, there was a minimum level of trust that was necessary for you to agree to go. If you thought for a moment that his intention was actually to get you in the car, drive you up to Barstow, and kick you out on the side of the road, you wouldn't have gone. He said, I'd love to take you to dinner, and you thought he's a good guy. He will take me to dinner. He won't take me to Barstow. I won't find myself in a horrible situation. I'm going. And then if the date went well, you found him trustworthy, and you agreed to a second date and a third, and pretty soon it's rings and preachers and later babies, and it's just great. On the other hand, maybe somebody's asked you out, and you say to yourself, you know, he just kind of gives me the creeps. I'm not, I'm not going. And they say, well, he's from a great family, and you go, yeah, I know. I just, he kind of creeps me out. I'm just, no, thank you. I'm, I'm busy that day. Well, how about Friday? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of busy right now. It's a busy season. Why won't you go? Because you can't give that first deposit of trust. It's the same with God. When people place their baby, childlike, barely believing trust in Him, they find Him to be trustworthy, and they find that He rewards those who seek Him. Jesus put it in even more dramatic terms. He spoke not only of trust, He spoke of love. Look in Matthew 22. Somebody wanted to ask Jesus to test him, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. What does it mean to know God? It means to love Him and someone who denies His very existence. Using the intelligence that God gave that person to deny that God is even there cannot possibly trust or love Him. That is the heart of the matter, and that's why faith is always required, because it's not a ritual. It's not a mathematical formula that you can just know somehow, and you don't have to trust. I don't trust that two plus two equals four. I somehow, just through simple arithmetic that I've been taught, I've been told this is true, and somehow I just know that fact. But it's not satisfying. It might be helpful, but it's not satisfying like a personal relationship. You were made for personal relationship. The 27th verse of the entire Bible tells you that you were made in the image of God. Jesus comes much later showing exactly who God is and says that the greatest commandment of all and all that God wrote is to love God with everything He gave you. What am I trying to tell you? There's no personal relationship without trust. And you were made to love God and to enjoy Him forever. That is the design of the human heart. We are not a cosmic accident, and Dawkins himself does not believe that for an instant. Because he rages in every one of his books and lectures about right and wrong and true and false and good and evil. He never stands in the middle of a great disaster and shrugs his shoulders and says, well, that's just DNA in this cold, pitiless universe. I guess that's what this monster was somehow randomly 
arrived at doing because of the music of his DNA. No, Dawkins himself knows deep in his heart that there is something much greater than the music so-called of DNA. We were made to love God and to enjoy him forever, and he has given clear and sacrificial evidence of who he is and how much he loves you. If you want to know who God is and how much he loves you, look at the cross of Jesus. There is God dying on a cross for a humanity that has turned its back on him. And a man beside him who started that afternoon mocking Jesus and at the very end of his life, shortly before before dying alongside Jesus, he said, Lord, remember me. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. What was that? That was trust. That was one man turning away from himself and entrusting himself to Jesus because Jesus has given evidence, but you'll never know how much God loves you, how good He is, how much it is true that to know Him is to love Him. You'll never know any of that unless you begin to trust Him. And it's unlikely that that is your condition in a Sunday afternoon service. But if you have a shadow of a doubt of your relationship with God, this has mainly been ritual or something you've been dragged to. Let me tell you that there's a God in heaven who loves you, who stepped down to earth to live in your place and to die in your place and to take his own life back and get, so that you yourself could have eternal life. And that life begins the moment you turn from sin and you start trusting him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray that at this moment you would draw close to them in personal, compassionate love and make their heart and mind turn toward you so that they would love you and give you, Lord, that bare minimum trust that is necessary to begin a relationship with you. Save them, Lord, as they turn away from themselves and turn to you. And for the believers that are here, Lord, may our faith in you, our trust, our personal trust and reliance on you be strengthened and encouraged and perfected because you have loved and spoken so clearly through creation, in writing, and most of all through the life of your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we would know and love you and enjoy you forever. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.